We've been binge reading the Bible together, and I know some of you are continuing with the 90-day Bible reading challenge. I just want to encourage you, keep on going. I think we're about day 26 if you're keeping count, but who's counting? Just keep reading the Bible, start from wherever you left off, and keep on reading as we go through together. In our sermon series, we've been looking at the major sections of the Bible, giving a few clues, a few indications on how we might best read those sections in order to get the most out of our Bible reading together. Well, today, it's very exciting, we get to cross over into the New Testament. So we've covered the whole, the whole Old Testament very quickly and very briefly, but we've looked at the main sections of the Torah, that first five books of Moses, the law. We've looked at the historical books and how we might read them. We've looked at the wisdom literature, that sometimes quirky and very interesting, uh, lots of poetry. And then we've looked at the prophets very, very briefly. And I hope there's enough clues, enough incentives there uh, that you spend a bit more time in those sections reading through. Well, today we move into the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, these very familiar stories. And maybe that's one of the challenges that we face, actually. As we come to preach on the Gospels, we hear these stories most often in the church. We hear them in our childhood because they're great stories to tell, so full of life. Uh, the parables of Jesus and some of the sayings, uh, the whole story of the cross and of the resurrection, all of that is in the Gospels. And so that's the heart and soul of who we are, and that's what we love to read. Uh, the challenge is, sometimes we become so over-familiar with them that we don't see some of the nuances or even the radical nature of the Gospel that God is calling us to. So hopefully we can dig into that a little bit today and set you on path to read the Gospels with fresh eyes. Well, that whole word gospel, it's a bit of a weird word. I mean, we use it sometimes in common society when we talk about the gospel truth about something, uh, but generally it's, it's very much a Christian Bible kind of word. And it's a bit of a weird word. Uh, if you don't believe me, just take a moment, say it five times fast, and you'll see that gospel just sounds a little bit strange. And it sounds strange because it does come from the Old English, and it's made up of two words, God and spell, and essentially it means good news. And so that's where we get this idea of the good news of the gospel. It's good news of the good news, and that's what gospel means. In the Greek, we have the word euangelion, which means a little bit more than good news, but it has that heart to it, this announcement, this proclamation of good news. But to really understand this concept of the gospel, we can't, we can't start in the gospels. We actually have to go back, surprise, surprise, to the prophets. And I said this last sermon, we really won't understand the full impact of the teachings of Jesus unless we understand some of the message of the prophets. And the first use of this idea of gospel or good news really comes to us in Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 7. In Isaiah 52, uh, the prophet is imagining and, and talking about the time when Jerusalem will lie in ruins. The city is a rubble, a kind of a mess. It's a time of despair, a time of hopelessness. But the watchman on the wall spots a messenger. And the messenger is coming down the hills and then coming up to Jerusalem, comes into the city, uh, maybe puffing and panting, but he yells out, he proclaims, good news, 
the king still reigns. That would have been a surprising message because in the midst of all this hopelessness, the idea that God still reigns would have been a surprise. But this is what it says in Isaiah 52 and verse 7, and this verse might be familiar to some of you. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messenger who brings good news, the good news of peace and salvation, the news that the God of Israel still reigns. That's the gospel. And so when we come to the New Testament gospels, that message still holds true. It's the good news, the proclamation that the king and the kingdom is still intact and that the king of heaven still reigns, that the story is not over, hope is not lost, God is still on his throne, and the king is now among us. And the kingdom is what we're invited to participate in. That's a big part of the gospel. And so it comes from Isaiah, it comes from the prophets, it comes when Jesus makes this great declaration that we've already read in our passage together, and we're going to get that in a moment. So when we come to these four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, essentially what we have are four ancient biographies of Jesus that proclaim this message, this good news that the king is here. Now, why four? I mean, if you think about it, wouldn't it have made sense for them all to get together and maybe come up with one super gospel? Spend some time, get your story straight. I mean, come on, Matthew and Luke, your genealogies start at the different point and use different people. Wouldn't it have been better if you got your story straight first and then told the story of Jesus? That would have made it simpler for many of us, especially as preachers, who have to explain some of the differences that we find in the gospel accounts. But the gospel writers saw themselves as witnesses. Now, what does a witness do? A witness simply recalls and recounts what they saw, what they heard, what they felt. That's exactly what Luke says. He says, what we've seen with our eyes, what we've heard with our ears, we're writing this down so that you can hear it as well. Imagine for a moment that uh, there was a car accident and there's four different witnesses to the same accident. They're standing on the four street corners of the accident. And the policeman goes around and interviews each of the four witnesses. And to the policeman's surprise, every witness has exactly the same story. All the details, all the, the, the way the events happened, the names, the colors of the cars, the make, everything is so detailed that the policeman starts to wonder, is this scripted? Did these four people get together and conspire in order to develop this story. That's what we would wonder too, if all four gospels were exactly the same. In fact, the fact that there's differences, differences of approach, difference of inclusion of what stories to include or exclude, that strengthens the story for me because it shows us that these witnesses are telling the truth. They're saying what they saw, what they heard with their ears, what they saw with their eyes, and they're writing it down for future generations so we know what happened with Jesus. Now, not all the stories are included. And John, at the end of his gospel, he makes that very plain. He says, if, if we included all the stories, there'd be no end to the books that would be written about what Jesus did. So we have a snapshot, a sample of stories, so that we can understand the life and the ministry, the work of Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. 
So it's interesting as we look at these stories, we tend to group the Gospels uh, into two different camps. Uh, one group are the three synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they follow a lot of the same material. They have a lot of overlap. And then we have John, and John is just doing his own thing on the side. Uh, John was uh, once known as uh, the son of thunder, and then he becomes known as the apostle of love, and he writes some letters later on in the New Testament. Uh, but John's gospel kind of stands alone. And I heard someone say this, and I found it very helpful. He said, the synoptics tell the story of Jesus from the earth up, and John tells it from heaven down. And I found that very interesting. As you read through the Gospels, just watch for that. Watch for the starting point in Matthew, Mark, and Luke compared to the starting point that we find in John that I actually read at the beginning of the service today. Well, as we go through the Gospels, Matthew, he presents Jesus in a number of ways. He presents Jesus as the king that is expected, the Messiah that is to come. But he also presents Jesus as the new and better version of Moses. He's the new Moses. Uh, he's laying down the law. When Jesus ascends the mountain and delivers the Sermon on the Mount, it uh, is kind of an echo of Moses going up Mount Sinai and delivering the law. Uh, Matthew also divides his writing into five sections. It's kind of like the five books of the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. And so once we clue into some of that, we start to unlock the beauty of the gospel of Matthew. Well, Mark, Mark is the shortest of the gospels. That's why I love Mark. In fact, if you've never read any part of the Bible before, start with Mark. Mark gets to the point. He's direct. It's uh, action-filled and exciting, and it's short. And so if you want to get a good snapshot of Jesus, read the Gospel of Mark. And there's a reason for that, people think, and that is because we understand that Mark's writing is actually Peter's sermons that are being written down for uh, a wider audience. And Peter was very impulsive. Peter the Apostle was very direct. Uh, so you find in Mark's Gospel things like, Jesus got, gets into a boat, and immediately it's on the other side. So it's kind of action-packed. And we find some of the flavor of Peter coming through in Mark's gospel. Well, in Luke, we find out that Luke is really an outsider. He's Greek, and he is called Dr. Luke. And so we find details, uh, especially in the crucifixion, that we don't find in the other gospels because of that sort of scientific medical background, perhaps. But we also find in Luke's gospel the inclusion of many more outsiders. So women and people who are outcasts and lepers, people who are marginalized, uh, Gentiles, they're all celebrated much more in Luke's gospel. And I just love that about Dr. Luke bringing that perspective to the gospel. And then John, of course, doing his own thing. Uh, John pulls back the curtain for us and he connects us to the cosmic beginnings of Jesus. Uh, he gives us a revelation, not only in the revelation, but also in the gospel of John uh, that reveals something more than the other writers do. So isn't this wonderful? Isn't this beautiful that we get to see Jesus from so many different angles? And my, my encouragement to you as you read the gospels is enjoy all the flavors of the gospel. Enjoy them all. Uh, enjoy the personality that comes through knowing with confidence 
that these are Holy Spirit-inspired scriptures. This is truth through personality. And we see that very much in the gospel writings. And my encouragement is, if you sit down with a portion of a gospel, read the whole thing from, from the beginning to the end, and you'll get a sense of what's happening in that story. Well, here's the thing. No matter what path that these gospel writers take in their storytelling, they all hit the brakes and slow things down when it comes to the cross. In fact, this is an amazing thing to me. Uh, just about 40% of the gospel writings focus on one week in the life of Jesus. Let that sit with you just for a moment and think of Jesus being, you know, about 33 years of age and in human terms, as people understood his life at the time. And we have 33 years uh, for 60% of the writings, but then this one week right at the end, 40% of the writing has to do with the, the trial and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus all compressed into that time. And so this is amazing. We see these four paths that the gospel writers take, but there's one great climax. There's one great moment in the crowning of the king. Remember we said that the gospel announcement is that the king still reigns? We find that here in the gospels. The crowning of the king takes place in a very different and unexpected way because the crowning of this king takes place on the cross. So the gospel writers talk about the crown that he receives, talk about the robe, about his staff, and about being lifted up. Only instead of being lifted up or exalted onto a throne, he is lifted up onto a cross. And this surprised so many people at the time. But it shouldn't surprise us if we're familiar with the prophets, because the prophets told us that the Savior that was to come, the king that was to fill David's seat on the throne, was going to be a suffering servant, was going to be a suffering Savior. Just read Isaiah 53, and you'll find all about that. And so this is the gospel. This is what's happening in the gospels. They all build up to this final passion week, and then they slow it down, and they show the coronation of King Jesus as it takes place on the cross. And so the cross is not the defeat of Jesus. The cross is the victory of Jesus over evil systems, over evil in our hearts and minds, over sin in general. Uh, this is the victory of God in Christ and the exaltation of the King of Kings. This is the gospel. This is the good news. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul, looking back on this gospel story, he says this, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. And here he gives the clearest definition of what this good news is. He says, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the good news that the messenger came to deliver, that Jesus came to deliver, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. The gospel, this good news, is an event in history that changed the world forever. 
Now, I, I, if we had time together and could chat together, we could talk about lots of events that have changed us. We can talk about personal events that have changed us. I think of the birth of our two girls, of Christine and I, when she gave birth to uh, our daughters, that changed our lives forever. It certainly changed my bank account and has changed sleep patterns, but it's also changed us in many wonderful ways too. And so we can point to real events in history that change our lives. But we can also point to events that were beyond us, events that we didn't even participate in that have changed our lives. I think of 9-11 and the attacks on the Twin Towers. That really changed the world and changed our, our viewpoint on so many different things. But I think of the event that we're in the middle of right now, uh, this whole pandemic, this COVID-19. And so we find ourselves in the midst of a world-altering event. We're living that kind of history. And uh, it's going to be amazing to see what people do with this as they look back on it. But it's going to be a world-changing event that takes place in history. Well, in a very similar way, the gospel of Jesus is not a set of teachings. It's not a set of, of moral principles. It's not simply an enlightened path that you follow. The gospel of Jesus is an event in history that changed the world. And that's the gospel. This good news about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The good news that because Jesus died and because he defeated death, because he actually rose again from the dead, we can experience peace with God. We can experience forgiveness for our sins. We can experience a purpose for life. And we can experience hope for the future beyond the grave. That's the result of the gospel. That's the result of this this world-transforming event that takes place in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, when I explain it like that, you might think, and I might think, that everyone would jump for joy with that kind of announcement. Someone rushed into the room and said, guess what, guys? Even if we die today, there's life beyond the grave because of what Jesus did. Everybody cheers. Everybody gives high fives. Everybody is team Jesus, right? But that's not the way it works out. Apparently, that's not the reception that the gospel receives, and Jesus knew that. In fact, at many points throughout the gospel writings, we find Jesus talking about and experiencing rejection. One of the very famous stories that Jesus told was about a farmer that went out to his field to sow the seed. And he sows the seed very, very generously, almost foolishly, almost carelessly, as he throws the seed no matter where it lands in the whole field. And what the farmer discovers is that only 25% of his entire field produces a sustainable crop. Now, either that's not very good farming methods, or it's a very difficult field. Well, Jesus explains that essentially that the seed is the word of God, which is also himself. He is the seed coming into the world, and that the majority of people that hear the message of the gospel, 75% in that case, will actually reject it for various reasons and various circumstances. And it'll only produce fruit in a small group, a small minority. That's a surprise to many people. Why is that? Well, this theme of rejection is also found in the passage that was read for us today in Luke chapter 4, uh, verses 14 through 30. 
And, and this is the experience of Jesus right at the beginning of his ministry. This is right after his baptism and his temptation in the wilderness. And he comes into the synagogue. He does what every grown Jewish man is able to do. He opens a scroll and he reads. And he reads from the prophets, right? We mentioned this already. And he reads from Isaiah, these wonderful verses. And at the beginning of the passage, in verse 15, you can see this. It says, everyone praised him. Everyone was singing his praises. They couldn't believe what he was doing. He was going around the towns. He was healing people. He was saying good words. People were encouraged by him. They were excited by him. They were singing his praises at the beginning of the passage. But then go down to verses 28 and 29. All of a sudden, the tone changes. And the people want to drive him out of town and literally throw him off a cliff. Now, what happened? What happened between verses 15 and verse 28? What did Jesus do? Well, Jesus does what he always does. He doesn't let the crowd be comfortable or just go along for the ride. He always pushes things just a little too far. And we find that happening here. And so we find this group of people becoming fickle fans of Jesus. And we find that all throughout the Gospels, a lot of people will follow him because he's making a bunch of bread and they're excited about that. But then when he lays down the criteria for discipleship, they scatter pretty quickly. Fickle fans. It's kind of like Canucks fans. Um, I spent some time in BC, so I can say this with authority. I remember attending a game in uh, Vancouver and we're watching the Canucks play. And at the beginning, there was so much excitement in the stadium. Everybody was waving their white towels. We were all so encouraged that the Canucks were going to pull off a tremendous victory. And as the game developed, it became very clear that was not going to happen. And by the end of the game, the fans were booing their own team. They were chucking stuff on the ice. And after the game, they went out and wrecked the city. Fickle fans, sometimes. And so this is what happens to Jesus. This is his experience. He starts with people encouraged and praising him, singing his praises. And then at the end, people turning him or turning on him. So what happened? Well, he starts well. He reads that passage from Isaiah. But then alarm bells start to go off when he says to the, the group in the synagogue, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And all of a sudden their ears perk up and they say, wait a minute, uh, that's nice, but aren't you Joseph's son? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure we know this guy. He's, he's from our own hometown, right? Uh, he used to play soccer with my kid down at the park. I mean, who's this guy to say that today this has been fulfilled in your hearing? We're, we're waiting for the great king to come on David's throne. But then Jesus drives that wedge in even further by telling two important stories and it's important to get these stories in order to understand the gospel. Jesus tells a story about a widow and a leper. And the thing that both these stories have in common is that the main character in the story is an outsider. They're outside of the normal covenant of Israel. And yet, at a time when Israel wasn't seeing God's blessing, these outsiders saw the special favor and blessing of God. Jesus tells a story and they are incensed. <laughs> they are absolutely offended 
by this? Why is that? What was the point that Jesus was making that was clear to the listeners at the time? I think the point was something like this. Jesus was saying, the kingdom is here now. But because of your stubborn, pride-filled hearts, you're all going to miss it. And it's going to be delivered to someone else. And they were enraged. They were enraged at the idea. So this gives us a clue. The gospel is good news, but not everyone receives it as good news. And why is that? Because the gospel demands something of us. And Jesus makes this very clear. There is no cheap grace here. This is costly discipleship, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer reminded us. Because the gospel calls us to repentance. It calls us to turn from our pride. It calls us to turn from our moral self-reliance. It calls us to turn from our sin and to put our whole weight on the work that Jesus has done on our behalf. That's the call of the gospel. That's what makes it so hard because we are generally very pride-filled, self-reliant, self-righteous kind of people. And we have to learn to set that aside and we have to turn from our sin and we have to believe, that is to trust wholeheartedly in the work that Jesus has done for us. I remember hearing a story, and I think I've told it before, of a Bible translator. And he got stuck on the words faith and trust. He just couldn't find a corresponding word in the local language that he was translating the Bible into. So he called his assistant who knew the local language and dialect, and he sat in his chair and he lifted his feet and his hands completely off the ground. And he said to his assistant, give me the word for what I'm doing now. And the assistant used a word that means you're putting your whole weight on the chair. To put your whole weight on. That's the word that the translator used for faith, for trust. And that gives us a clue that in order to receive this gospel, we need to put our whole weight on Jesus. We need to trust him completely with our souls, with our lives, with, with our future, with what happens to us beyond the grave. We have to trust him completely for forgiveness, for peace with God, for reconciliation with other. We need to trust him completely with our very lives. In that sense, we have to die to ourselves and we have to live and be born again in Jesus Christ. That's the call of the gospel and that's why sometimes and often it's not received with the kind of joy that we might anticipate. Well, the gospel isn't just good news that we tell from time to time. It also comes with an invitation. And this is what I want to close this sermon with. There's actually two invitations in the gospel today. The first one is this, believe the gospel. The invitation to believe the gospel, to put your whole weight on Jesus. If you've never done that before, if you don't remember doing that before, it's a conscious decision to repent, to turn from our sin, and to put our whole weight on Jesus. Uh, Jesus says in Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the gospel. That's the invitation I want to give you uh, this morning as we join in worship. And if you'd like to explore that invitation a little further and what it means to put your whole weight on Jesus, I would love to talk to you. That's part of the good news. But then there's another invitation 
that comes right at the end of Mark's gospel in Mark chapter 16 and verse 15. And it's the invitation to those who have believed the gospel to now share the gospel. He said to them, this is Jesus speaking, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to all creation. The beginning of Mark's gospel, repent and believe the gospel. At the end of it, go into all the world and proclaim. Through your words, through your actions, through community life together, proclaim the gospel, this good news about Jesus and the opportunity that he brings because of the work that he's completed at the cross and at the resurrection. So this is the gospel story. And I encourage you to read and reread and dig in. Uh, We haven't had time to talk about the implications of the gospel that cuts across not only our personal life and personal salvation, but into all of society. Uh, When the apostles in the Acts of the Apostles start to go out and proclaim this gospel, there's some people that say, these men are turning the world upside down. And they didn't mean that in a good sense, uh, because the gospel does that if we take it seriously and if we live it out. So good news, Jesus has come. He died for us, but he didn't stay dead. He rose again from the grave. Let's believe it. Let's share it together. Amen.